0: Amen. Wow, people are far away. I feel like I may just get down here and jump, come a little bit closer, but no, this is fine. Social distancing, I suppose. 28 feet social distancing, I think, is the, is the rule. No, I, it's great to be back here with you guys. If you were here last week, I wasn't able to make it. I was in Mississippi uh, at a conference with family. I watched it on Facebook Live. A quick show of hands, how many were here last week? It looked like a memory, uh, to say the least. The, I heard the opening illustration as he started with singing in the rain, and so don't worry, there are no illustrations about hurricanes, or rain, or droughts, or dust bowls in the sermon tonight. Uh, just sunshine and cool breezy weather, that's the opening illustration. Um, but it looked like a memory. Ryan did an outstanding job, it was so great being able to hear him uh, bring the word, and again, seeing the, the water pour in from the back and my man wasn't even phase. He just kept going. I was like, my man, just bringing it. So it was uh, great being able to hear uh, from him. So we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Philippians this evening. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. We'll be in Philippians 4 and continuing on our study, looking at just two verses tonight, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Paul is continuing his instruction to this church in Philippi that he had helped plant 10 years previously. Paul's in prison, in Rome, writing to this local church in Philippi, a Roman province. He's coming off the heels of practical counsel that he's given to two people in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, telling them to agree in the Lord. There was some dispute that they had. We don't know exactly what it was, but Paul is saying the gospel should bear and press witness into their interpersonal relationship that they should agree in the Lord, that they have co-workers side by side in the gospel uh, and their names are written in the book of life. They move in verses 4 through 7 talking about how we are to rejoice in the Lord always and how our battle against worry is through prayer and through petition and that God's peace, which surpasses all understanding, is promised to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul now gets to verses 8 and 9 and gets tremendously practical into our lives. Paul's going to show us what it is we need to be doing in this fight, in this war uh, called the Christian life. And he brings it practically in verses 8 and 9 as he wraps up here. So we'll read and then jump in this evening. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we've got two questions tonight. If you're taking notes uh, in your bulletin, you see we just got two points. We're asking two questions. And those questions are simply, what are you thinking about and what are you doing about it? What are you thinking about and what are you doing about it? Again, Paul gets incredibly practical here. Now, Tuesday, on June 6th, 1944. This is also a day known as D-Day, Operation Overlord. The date of the largest seaborne invasion ever in the history of the world. It was the seaborne invasion onto the beaches of Normandy that would lay the foundations for the Allied victories in the Western Front. This would effectively lead to the downfall of the Nazi Party and the Third Reich in its entirety. A battle that would change the landscape of our world as we know it. But here's the question I want to ask if we start this evening. What would have happened if those ships showed up on a different beach? Or what would have happened if those ships showed up in a different country? You see, what was just as important as deploying the right number of troops or employing the proper military strategy was knowing exactly where the battle needed to happen. It needed to happen in Normandy, at those beaches. In order to win the war, they had to know where the battle needed to take place. You see, it's no different with the Christian life and the war that each of us are engaged in. Where should the battle in the Christian life take place? I think for so many, Christianity can sometimes be kind of painted as this sense of just external moral conformity. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, do these things. And don't do these things. right? You, you see it famously portrayed in movies like in Dirty Dancing, the pastor who is opposed to any kind of dancing or certain kinds of music. It's focused on external moral conformity. But is that where the war and the battle for the Christian life should be waged? What we do, or what we shouldn't do? Well, I wanna put forward today, and I think Paul does here in the rest of the New Testament, that the battle in the Christian life is not external, but internal. What we do matters, of course, but that is not where the battle is waged. The battle is waged internally. So this is where Paul here in this instruction towards the end gets to them and he's telling them not just what they need to do, but notice telling them what they need to think about. Paul tells them to dwell on these things, to be able to think on these things, to linger on these things, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent and praiseworthy. Paul's saying, fight the battle in your mind. And that will then lead out through your hands. Well, it sounds similar to what Jesus says in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, don't commit adultery and don't commit murder. He goes underneath and says, anyone who lusts after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. And anyone who's angry against his brother has committed murder in his heart. And what we see is that Jesus isn't concerned just with what we are doing, but what we are thinking. It goes beyond the action. It certainly includes it, but it goes beyond it. If we just stop and think that Christianity is a set of rules that we need to try to do or not to do, friends, we are missing the power of the gospel and the relationship that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Paul just got done saying this in Philippians 3. He says, hey, all of my self-righteousness, all of my spiritual resume and my pedigree, I count it all as loss. Why? For the surpassing value of doing the right thing? No, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's saying this is what is the essence of Christianity, and so it should be a battle that is fought in our minds And not with just what we are doing. Jesus in the Sermon on on the Mount condemns not what our hands are doing, but what our heads are thinking and what our hearts are feeling. Friends, the battleground for the war that you are fighting is internal. The proverbial beaches of Normandy in your life is in your heart and in your mind. That's where the battle wages, that's where we should be fighting. That battleground is internal, and that is why the gospel brings internal transformation and not just external conformity. That's what we're aiming for, internal transformation, renewed minds and transformed hearts. We want transformation. We want to think differently. So the question then that we get to is then, well, how are we transformed? Transformed. How can we get transformation? Maybe you've come here this morning or this evening. Goodness, I've got to get out of that habit. It's 6 o'clock at night, this evening. You come this evening and you're like, Caleb, I hear all that, but man, I'm struggling I'm a I'm a husband. Uh, I, I'm a employee. I have a hard time uh, living this thing called the Christian life. I'm battling against sin. I'm struggling to pay my bills. I'm trying to figure out my way in this entire crazy world right now. And you go, yeah, transformation sounds great, but how? How can I be transformed? How can I be sanctified or changed to look more like Jesus? This is a question that we should all be asking. And though it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible doesn't leave us then in the dark. The Bible tells us exactly how we are transformed. Paul, in another letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes this, he says, do not be conformed to this age, but... So here comes the opposite, the opposite of confirmation to the world, of looking around at the culture as Paul's writing to Rome. He's saying, don't look around at the Colosseum and the impressive buildings and the idea of a democratic republic or the wealth that has come here or all the roads and try to conform to this age. Paul says, but on the contrary, be transformed. There it is, transformation. But how? Paul, how are we transformed? He continues, by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, "You seek transformation." Are you tired of just living the norm or just going through the motions of the Christian life? You look around and you see everyone in this country that is uh, trying to figure out what to do and you go, I want to be different. I want transformation. Paul says, great, here's how you do it. By the renewing of your mind. You want confirmation or transformation? Conforming to the world or being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Paul is honing in and focusing on our minds, on our thoughts. The church in Rome and the church in Philippi and the church here at the Grove. Our battleground is in our mind, what we think about. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells them, this church, he says, we should take every thought captive to obey Christ. Can you hear the emphasis on our thoughts? Paul's saying anything, anything that pops into your head, okay? I want you to think about what Paul is saying. Every thought that runs between your ears, Paul says, take it captive. No matter if you're just sitting around, if you're watching TV, scrolling through TikTok, whatever, whatever is going through your mind, Paul says, take it captive because your thoughts matter. What we think about leads what we love. And so Paul said, make sure that you take control and captive of your mind to bring it into submission and to obey Christ. So Paul, again, you hear the emphasis on what we think about. So again, if you're anything like me, then you begin to ask, okay, well, how then am I supposed to take every thought captive? What, am I supposed to just not think about anything? It's impossible. If I sit here and go, I'm not going to think about anything. I'm thinking about not thinking about anything. So I'm thinking about something all the time. What am I supposed to do then? If I have these thoughts that come through my head, whatever they might be, temptation, idle thoughts, goodness, whatever. We know things that Paul writes about, things that are not true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, or commendable. What are we supposed to do then in those moments? How do we take every thought captive? Well, here's what I'd put forward then this evening is the way that we then remove those thoughts that aren't this list of things that Paul writes is not by just trying to not do them, but by replacing them with what is true, by replacing them with what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, and what is commendable. Then when we take a thought that we should be thinking when we take particularly God's word and we take these truths to hide them in our hearts and in our minds, when we hide them in our hearts and meditate on them day and night, they then will push out and expel these thoughts that are not true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, or commendable. There is an expulsive power to these new and greater thoughts. There's a Puritan named Thomas Chalmers who had a a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's an incredible sermon. It's influenced me greatly. You can go read it. It's old English, but it's outstanding. And here's, in essence, the thesis of what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, like John Calvin, that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts just create idols for us to worship when left to themselves. Our minds are the same way. If we leave them unattended, they will run to things that are not of God. So what do we do? What Chalmers puts forward, and what I would say, is we put a greater affection, a new affection in our hearts, a new thought, a greater thought in our minds, something that is true, things that are filled with gospel hope and gospel promise to then push out and expel these other thoughts in our lives there's an expulsive nature to them. It reminds me of Archimedes, the, of Syracuse, the Greek um, astronomer and mathematician and engineer. He did a little bit of everything. But Archimedes was also, it's fable that he came up with the word Eureka. Now he probably didn't, but the so the saying goes. There was a, a king that was worried that his crown was being, uh, it was a forgery. Was supposed to be a gold crown. He thought that maybe the person who was making it was slipping in some silver a little bit cheaper and trying to pass it off. So he came to Archimedes and said, Archimedes, can you figure out whether or not this crown is a fake? And Archimedes, one day as he was trying to think, got into a bathhouse and as he sat down in the bath, noticed that the water came up out of the tub and he realized that the volume of himself, when he sat down in the tub, the amount of water that was displaced equaled the volume of an object placed into water. Great physics! you didn't know you are getting a physics lesson this evening. And Archimedes ran towards the uh, king to yell, Eureka, Eureka, I found it, I found it. To say, if you place the crown in water, the amount of water that's displaced will show you whether or not the crown was gold or silver, because silver would take more to weigh the same. To be able to then, whatever is placed in the water, would then displace that amount of water on the outside. If you place something in, it will push out something else. So that's both how allegedly the word Eureka came about, but also a true sense of how to live the Christian life. As we battle sin in our hearts and in our minds, how do we fight it? Well, friends, place in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, promises and scripture that are loaded with who God is and what He has done for us, and dwell on those things. Goodness, take Philippians 2. 6 through 11, and the beautiful explanation of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ to serve you and to die for you. Take that and hide that in your heart. And what I guarantee is if you dwell on those things, you will find as you place them into the tubs of your life, these other things will then be expelled. There is an expulsive nature, an expulsive power when we take these truths and take these thoughts and put them into our minds to think about and dwell on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. This is why when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, was praying for his disciples, both those around him and for everyone who would believe in him. So when Jesus prayed for you, what did he pray? In John 17, verse 17, he prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. That word sanctified just means to be transformed into and changed into the very image of Jesus. To be sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. But so Jesus is saying, how are we transformed? How are we changed into the image of Jesus? How are our minds renewed? By his truth, by his word, by hiding it in our hearts and in our minds. That it will then begin as we hide those things in our minds, will then lead our hearts. Because the truth is, our hearts cannot be trusted. Anybody else? There's a moniker kind of in our culture today, right? Just follow your heart just follow Whatever you want to do, follow your heart. Boy, that is terrible Christian advice. Why? Because according to the Bible, our hearts are wicked. In fact, to quote Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? That's the biblical explanation of our hearts. And so to follow that is a trail for disaster. Listen, I know that's true because so many of you are Florida fans. So how can you trust your heart if it's leading you to that? Oh, moving on, the gospel is large enough for all of us. So what do we do then? If we're not to follow our hearts, what are we to do? Well, friends, the answer, is Paul lays out in 4.8 and elsewhere, is we do not follow our hearts, we lead our hearts. We do not step back to see how it is we feel, and we don't listen to ourselves, we preach to ourselves. This is, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh minister in the early 1900s, and he coined that expression to preach to ourselves, not to listen to ourselves. What's he mean by that? Well, he means don't sit and listen to the feelings of your heart passively. Instead, fill your minds with the truth of who God is in his scripture. And in those moments, whenever our feelings or our circumstances contradict what God has revealed himself to be, we have two choices. We can either listen to ourselves and go, God, I do not believe that you are trustworthy. I do not believe that you are faithful. God, my circumstances, I feel crushed right now. Second Corinthians 4 cannot be true. Or we can preach to ourselves. This is what so many of the Psalms are structured as. You ever read through the Psalms, right? The Psalms cry out, my life is falling apart, but God, I know that your promises are still true. Right? The song uh, written by Matt Redmond, Bless the Lord, O my soul, is taken out of the Psalms where the psalmist is literally singing the song to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's singing to himself, bless the Lord, forget not his promises. Why? Because we are inclined to forget them. We have to fill our minds with what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, the promises of who God is and what He has done for us, hiding them in our hearts that we might be transformed then by the renewing of our minds and sanctified by His Word and lead our hearts then to the truth and not following where we don't know where to go. Well, This is the hope that we see. And this is the fight in the battleground where we see it's on. Jesus has called us to dwell on these things, to think about these things. To be able to see God's word and read it every day. To hide it in our hearts. To meditate on it day and night. To memorize it, to listen to it, to sing it, to talk about it with your spouse, with your friends, with your children. Write it on your doorpost like in Deuteronomy or on post-it notes around the house. Fill your mind with the truth and purity and loveliness of God's word. And friends, you will be transformed as our minds are renewed. There's not just spiritual wisdom here in these verses. There's also relational wisdom. Right? As Paul, again, the context in the church of Philippi, we see the issue Paul keeps coming back to was this relational strife and conflict that existed in the church, both specifically with Yodi and Syntyche, but also probably largely with the church as a whole, Paul keeps coming back up with this issue of disunity and frustration and disagreements within the church. Now, this has happened in the first century, and it continues to happen ever since. So how do, how do we fight it? Well, I think part of how we fight it, Paul gives us here. right, coming right off of the heels of this practical council with Yodi and Syntyche, Paul is now saying, finally, brothers and sisters, don't just fill your mind with the truth of Scripture that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Do that, but also in terms with one another. When you think about someone else, especially when you think about somebody else that you're frustrated with, that there might be tension or strife or disagreement with, I think Paul is bringing this to bear on relational strife as well. To say, when you think about that person, think about what is true about them. Think about what is honorable. Think about what is just, what is lovely, what is commendable. Think about the moral excellence. Anything that's praiseworthy, dwell on those things. Right? Because the tendency we have is not to do that. The tendency we have is to take the point of frustration with somebody else and dwell on that. It's part of it that we kind of we, we, we like the feeling of vindication or frustration or bitterness as we then would go and gossip about people behind their backs, things that we would say to other people but never say to their face. And Paul is saying, don't dwell on those things. Dwell on the things that are true and honorable. Don't create lies. Don't spread gossip. Think about things that are true. And friends, in relationships it's true as well that your head and your hands can lead your heart. So three practical things to do if you're in relational strife, either within this church right now or maybe within your coworkers or within your family or within your friend group, what can you do? Three practical things Paul gives us here. I think one is we see that our heads and our hands can lead our hearts. So first, dwell on the goodness of others and not on the particular things that frustrate you. Think about the good things about them. Think about the things that are true, the things that are commendable, things that are morally excellent and praiseworthy, and dwell on those things. Second, pray for the people that you're frustrated with. Pray for them. Pray good things for them. Billy Graham once said that you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time pray for those where you find there to be strife. And third, do something loving for someone that you're frustrated with. Do something that is kind. Do something, write them a note, buy them a gift. Do something that you would do as if they were your closest friend. And what you will find is whenever you begin to do acts of love, your heart will begin to soften towards them. Your hands can lead your heart. And as you think and pray good things about them, your head can lead your heart as well. And so there's also relational wisdom, as Paul is saying. Think about the good things in this life. Goodness, there's tons of other practical implications to this verse. What music we're listening to, what TV shows we watch, how we spend our time. Would they be described by these things? What are true, honorable, just pure, lovely, and commendable. Friends, think and dwell on these things. But Paul doesn't just simply end with the question of what we think about. What are you thinking about? He then turns in verse 9 and begins to move now to our action. So secondly, the question, what are we doing about it? So Paul says, dwell on these things, think on these things, linger on these things, and then verse 9, now do. That word right there, very important. Box, circle, highlight. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is saying, hey, you have learned this and you have received it. You've been taught, you've gotten letters, you've heard it passed down to you, you've learned and you've received what is true. You know The very gospel account that was given to Paul is then passed down to this church. And Paul's saying, listen, you've learned, you've received it. But notice he doesn't just end there. Now, he could have. He could have said, do what you've learned and what you've received from me. But then he says these two other things. And why would he say, not just what you've learned and received, but also what you've heard and seen in me? Why would he add those two? And what does it it add to the command? Well, notice, you can learn and receive from miles away. You can learn and receive from a letter in a prison that Paul writes to a church miles away. But Paul says you've not only learned and received it, you've also heard it and seen it for yourself. Here in the second half of this, Paul is saying there's a personal nature to this. You've heard it from me. You were here with me. You've seen it in me with your own eyes. Paul was around them. And you hear again this theme of imitation and godly example that Paul talked about in chapter 3 as well. Paul's saying you've heard it. You've seen it for yourself. And you then should do those things that you've heard, that you've seen, that you've learned, and that you've received. For Christianity is not a life that we just make up. We learn it from the people that are around us primarily. Christianity is not only taught, it is also caught. As we live a life together as a local church, we then begin to pick up on the people around us. Paul knows this. That's why he hits so often. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look and carefully examine these examples that are around you. And it's why I think Jesus set up this model. He told his disciples, notice in the Great Commission, he didn't say, hey, go now and have all these huge gospel rallies. Get groups of 10,000, 40,000, 100,000 people and get them to come and listen. In the Great Commission, Jesus looked at his 11 disciples that were gathered together at that time. And he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You now go and make disciples one by one. Go and do that and begin to set up churches that do that as well. And Paul knows this. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 too, hey, what you've received from me, go and pass it on to faithful men who will then do the same after you. Paul is saying, go and make disciples. Get these people around you. What you've heard and seen in me, gather around and look and see it in other people. And then go and do it. Don't just sit and study. Don't just sit and watch. Oh, wow, they're really godly. They're a lot different from me. I'm just not going to change. Okay, yeah, I know that this is what Jesus has told me to do. Oh, but yeah, I'm just not going to change. I know that he said I shouldn't grumble or complain. Man, it's so hard. I'm going to grumble and complain about having to not grumble and complain. Is that really what Jesus wants me to do? I think about the, the danger we can have, I think, often, sometimes even in the West especially, I think about my daughter that I may tell her to go and clean up her toys in her room. And if she came back to me and she said, hey, Dad, I just want to let you know, I've thought a lot about what you said and what you told me to do, a lot about it. I meditated on this morning for an hour. I drank some coffee. I read it over and over again. I looked at it in the original Greek and can look at the different parsings and saw exactly what you told me to do. Dad, I know it. I've studied it. I've got it. And I walk into her room and her toys are still everywhere and I go, okay, that's great. You know in the Greek, but the, the toys, they're, they're still. you didn't do what I told you to do. And friends, I think there's a temptation for us to study God's word, to have Bible studies, to get small groups, to preach expositionally through the scripture, to see the way in which it applies to our, our lives, to hear all the things that we need to do and think about and to walk out and not be changed at all. Friends, the gospel calls for transformation. Now again, it's important that we aren't just morally conforming, but if our lives are not changing, we are not really believing what God has told us. And so Paul says, dwell on all of these things, the beauties of the cross and the hope of the gospel and the hope of Jesus' second coming. Think about what is good and honorable and just and commendable around you, but also do it. Don't just stop there. Get around people that make you want to be more like Jesus and get around them even more. Join a small group here. Find somebody that you look up to that, again, makes you want to love Jesus more and go, hey, can we just meet regularly? Can we get coffee once a week, just read the Bible together, read a good book together? Get yourself around people so that you can hear and see for yourself as well so that whenever we walk out, we would not be like what James says, where we are hearers of the word and not doers, but that we would be both. We would hear what is true and just. It would affect our hearts and then bring about changed lives. That's what Paul is calling this church here to do. He's calling them to do. And he's calling us to do. Goodness, if you just move through the book of Philippians to see what Paul has written and told them what they need to do. As we've walked through this book up until this point, have we taken these things to heart and are they actually changing our lives? Again, just to run through briefly what Paul has told this church to do in this letter alone up to these verses, Paul told them in the first chapter, remember your church members as partners in the gospel and pray for them with joy tells them to grow in knowledge and discernment, approve things that are superior and strive for purity and blamelessness. Look at everything in your life as an opportunity to advance the gospel, even in, especially in trials or difficulty or persecution. To rejoice, however, Christ is truly proclaimed. To see our life as Christ because we are making him known and our death as gain because we will then be with him to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand firm in one spirit, to contend for the faith side by side, to not be frightened by our opponents, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or in conceit, but in humility to count others as more important than yourselves. To look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To adopt the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To do everything without grumbling and complaining. To consider any righteousness you might have as your own as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. To count it all as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. To know Him to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to make every effort to take hold of holiness, to forget what is behind, to strain forward to what is ahead, to pursue as your goal the prize that's promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus, to imitate Paul and other godly examples in your life as they imitate Christ, to weep over the reality that many live as enemies to the cross of Christ, and they are walking towards destruction and to live instead as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and to wait eagerly for our coming Savior, to stand firm in the Lord, to agree in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, to let your graciousness be made known to everyone, to not worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and to dwell on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is commendable to do these things. Friends, are we doing them? Have we set our minds on them? Are we striving for transformation? Or are we just checking off boxes and living the Christian life? Or do you want something more? Do you want what Paul described in chapter 3 of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord? And to be able to look then at Jesus and anything else that comes your way and to be able to say, no, Jesus is better. I know Him And He satisfies the longings of my heart more than anything, any temptation, or any sin in this world can. Are we doing it? Are we doing what we have learned and received, what we have heard and seen? Because then, when that happens, friends, as we are walking then in obedience with God, then His blessing is experienced in our life as well, and the God of peace will be with you as we live the life as God has designed us to live in obedience to Him, that is the way in which we will naturally flourish. As men and women live, as God has designed men and women to live, as sexuality in the midst of marriage is played out in the way that God has designed it to live. These are not just rote commands to follow begrudgingly, but as we walk in obedience, we see that this is actually the way in which God has called humans and us as his creation to live and to flourish. And as we obey him and follow him, we will find him near to us, and the God of peace will be with us. Friends, this evening, ask ourselves these two questions. What are you thinking about? And what are you doing about it? This week, especially, think about that first question. What are you thinking about? And try to look through that lens. Are my thoughts pure and true, just, honorable? Take the verse, write it on a post-it note, put it somewhere that you would see it often, and try to take every thought captive this week. And as thoughts begin to drift away from that, replace it with something else. Find some verse in the Bible that you find stirs your affections for Jesus. Memorize it this week. And in those moments where you find those thoughts drifting, take it captive and replace it with something that is true, something that is pure, something that is lovely. And do these things and dwell on these things. What are you thinking about? And what are you doing about it? Let's pray. God, we are so, so grateful that you have called us, God, to be your people and that you have revealed how it is we're supposed to live, who it is we're supposed to be. And God, that you haven't left us to just do it on our own. Yes, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we also know that you are the one who works in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So, God, you've called us to live a life that we cannot live on our own, but you've also given us your spirit who's given us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now dwells in us to bring life to our mortal bodies. God, help us to live in dependence on your spirit and to live transformed lives as we strive for renewed minds. God, to dwell and to think and to wage war in a battle of our mind. And God, to think about your truth and your loveliness and your purity and your commendability, you and all of your moral excellence and praiseworthiness. God, that we would dwell on you. God, help us to dwell on those things and help us to do them. But we love you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.